Hello and welcome to Yesterday in Travel. My name is Brian and I'm joined as always by Kalina. Hi Kalina. Hello. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the successful launch and orbit of Sputnik, USSR's unmanned satellite experiment that achieved a first in human-powered spaceflight and sparked the technological competition between the US and the Soviets known as the Space Race. The fact that the Soviets beat the Americans into orbit had huge consequences, and the competitive nature of space exploration continues to this day. But before we get into all of that, let's discuss what's going on in travel today. Helena? Yes. Um, so I have a cool news story. It's this project. Well, first of all, we've talked a lot about over tourism and what the future of tourism might look like after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And there's this project in Florence that seeks to combat over tourism. So it's named after this, the famous museum in Florence which I'm not going to pronounce correctly, Uffizi, Uffizi. Um, and the project's called the Uffizi Diffusi Project, which means scattered Uffizi. And the idea is that they're going to take all this art that's in the museum right now and scatter it throughout Tuscany to create one big scattered museum. So they're hoping Whoa. to do like, yeah, they're hoping to do like 60 to 100 spaces all throughout the country and hopefully to bring paintings back to like where they came from. Oh, cool. So you're tying in like, yeah, history with, with the art. The goal, um, whoever was quoting this article I read said is to take the heat off Florence and to spread out travel throughout the region. Yeah. That's cool. How cool is that? Yeah. That's, I guess there's this other concept that I'd never heard of either called a scattered hotel concept, which is the same thing. It's like a hotel, but the rooms are not in one building. They're scattered throughout a hmm. place in different houses. Hmm. Interesting. That's like really a perfect solution to a pretty tricky problem, especially like to house them in places where they came from. So it's, it almost like makes the world a museum, which is kind of like the idea of travel a little bit is that you're going somewhere where like the culture is different and like the way of life is different. And you're going to experience that like kind of from a removed perspective as a visitor. Mm -hmm. And a museum is kind of like you're going to a place that has a specific not culture, but like a specific, you know, the MoMA has its particular style of art that you're going to experience. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was the coolest idea. So I'll be curious to see how it how it turns out. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is all sort of theoretical at the moment because there isn't much travel going on, but a cool idea for the future. Right. Yeah. And potentially something that like other at least art museums could replicate. Yeah. So that, that was that's cool. Cool initiative. Anything else? Yeah, I got two other things. One is that the U the EU has introduced this, and we've talked about this before, the possibility of this happening. But I guess it's the European Commission technically has introduced legislation about having a digital like green COVID passport mm -hmm. for vaccinated people. Um, which is interesting to me because not everyone in the EU is very happy about this because some places have not been very good about rolling out their vaccine. Mm -hmm. So they feel like they'll be discriminated against when it comes to summer travel or things like that. Yeah, I, I read this article, too, and it seems like the idea hasn't really fully blossomed into a coherent plan. It seems like it's the seeds of a, of a plan mm -hmm. that could work to allow people to travel who do have vaccines and allow things to get back to normal to a certain extent. But yeah, what do you do with people who caught coronavirus and then got better and therefore should be immune, theoretically, you know? Mm -hmm. First of all, are those people getting vaccines? And I don't believe they 
are, is my understanding. I think they can get like one dose. I read some, it was like a headline being like, if you've had COVID, Mm. you don't need two doses. You can just have one. So anyway, like there's that. There's all these people that they'd have to figure out if they get a passport or not. And then how do you verify that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think it's it's been an idea that people have been like, I think this probably will happen. So it's interesting to see, like, I don't know, it start to happen. And I, I don't I can't imagine that the United States will do something like that just because it seems like they've been so unorganized um, around, like, traveling from state to state or anything like that. Right. The whole decentralization fetish of the United States kind of gets in the way. Yes. And they said it's also something that the EU hopes to have the... World Health Organization, like expanded out to other countries. And I know Biden's not as anti World Health Organization as Trump was, but like the who right now in the States has kind of is kind of on bad footing. So who knows if that type of thing would get worked out in the States? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so, so my last story then is a very optimistic story that is about how airlines are preparing to rebound, like they're hiring new staff and they're buying new planes, like people in the travel industry are feeling like the rebound's coming and they're getting ready for Ooh. it. So that seems optimistic. Nice. nice. Yeah, that's great. I feel like I I hope they're right, but that's good. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's good that there's some optimism in an industry that's been very obviously hard hit by this whole thing. Right. I wonder, there's such pressure business-wise to get everything back online that I wonder if there's some like excessive enthusiasm or maybe not. I mean, it does seem like as soon as the snowball really gets going, this thing is potentially this whole debacle is over very quickly. It's it's a bit weird. Just today even, I don't know if you saw like in the Times just a matter of hours ago, there's an article that said that because of this partnership between Merck mm-hmm. and one Johnson of the Johnson. Jo- okay, Johnson Johnson. That suddenly they're going to have enough vaccine doses for every adult by May, according to Biden. Yeah, I, I did is, see that. To set that expectation also seems like they must be pretty sure. You know, the worst thing is to like set an expectation that you can't meet. And it always felt like up until now, Mm. it feels like he's been downplaying all the vaccine stuff and the progress and like the timeline has been like, you know, no one's trying to get out ahead of their skis and be like, oh, we're really raring to go and everyone's going to have it by. So they've been super careful about that. So for them to actually come out publicly and just be like, no, everyone's going to have a dose like that's huge news. It is. And you know what my mom said when I sent that article to her? What? She said, you better start checking airline prices to come home this summer. So Ooh. I mean, that's what I think a lot of people are thinking is like, yeah, yeah. oh, good. We're all going to be vaccinated. Let's make summer plans. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. So um, what about you? Do you have any travel news? I have two things. One is good news and one is kind of bad news. What do you want first? I want the bad news first. Get it over with. That's what you're supposed to say. Good. Um, the bad news <laughs> is that in the Caribbean right now, there's actually been like a huge uptick, uh, like basically a new, the biggest wave of infections mm. that they've had for the entire pandemic. So Ugh. in Jamaica, cases are twice as high as they've ever been. Or the number of total confirmed cases in Jamaica has doubled in the first two months of the year in Jamaica. And it's it's risen by 4x in mm. Cuba and eightfold in Barbados and around 10 it's 10 times as oh, high as yikes. it was at the new year in St. Lucia and St. Vincent and we're talking about 
small populations. And in Cuba's case, the fourfold is like, I, I saw another statistic recently that was like about what's going on in Cuba and how there's been this like huge spike. And to give it some context, the entire island of Cuba, the fourfold increase still puts it at a tenth of the number of COVID cases as Miami-Dade County, which has like five times as many people too. So, um, or sorry, one fifth the number of people. So like we're talking relative terms in Cuba because Cuba, they have done a very good job, but still for them, like to have it jump four times is still mm. a big deal. And they're all kind of freaking out at it, but it's nowhere near the level in the United States. But I'm not, and I'm not sure about the, about Jamaica and the other islands, but at any rate, they seem to have been doing a good job of keeping rates low. And then all of a sudden, the rates have, have jumped yeah. precipitously on all those islands. The second piece of news I had very quickly, relatively good news, is that Volvo just announced, I think yesterday, that they're going to go all electric, electric by 2030. And this is following Ford earlier in the week, which also said by 2030, they're going to be all electric. So there's been this wave of car companies that are um, making these promises. And it seems like there's sort of been a tipping point where the car industry, mm. the short distance travel industry has like basically understood that like consumers want electric cars, consumers are going to continue to want more and more. And so like the transition is on, it's happening. It's just a matter of time. Wow. So that's good news for it's it's really interesting. It is good news for the world. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to a podcast a while, like a long time ago. They were talking about what could possibly like stop the uh, climate crisis in its tracks. And one of the hosts said, well, it's going to take businesses seeing that it's more productive for them to be on the side of climate mm -hmm. than anything else. And they're the ones who are going to drive a push that hopefully would like combat climate change. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see that now in action with these car companies coming out with electric cars because they see the demand is so great mm -hmm. that they're going to step it up, which I guess is good. Like, you know, it's for money, but that's still still good. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, one way or another, uh, let's hope it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope. Well, that's why we're going to space, right? Right. Wow. Segway <laughs> pro. Let's get into it. Uh, let's let's talk about it. So what uh, so what is this whole Sputnik thing? Can you uh, can you give us a little intro? Yes. So on October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launches a satellite called Sputnik into space. And um, just to describe what Sputnik is, it's about the size of a beach ball. It weighs about 180 pounds. It takes a little over an hour and a half to go around the Earth and it travels at 18,000 miles per hour. So it's it's a small but very impactful thing. Yeah, yeah. And ha yeah. Surprisingly small and and I was a bit surprised to to find that it was it was that small and and it's surprisingly like for being an inanimate object with no living life form <laughs> in it just this thing this mm -hmm. hunk of metal revolving around the earth like such a grand importance for such a small hunk of metal yeah so let's rewind a little bit and then you're going to talk about how we got to this exciting moment in 1957 yeah yeah so it's it's an interesting story and it really starts with the end of World War II, where Germany is split into different sections and the Western allies 
are in charge of sort of three quadrants. And then the Soviets have uh, the Soviet occupied area of Germany. And Germany had developed during World War II these, these V2 rockets, which were everyone was terrified of. And, and it was like their, their big main weapon that they used. Um, so when the war ended, there was all of this interest on the U.S. side and on the Soviet side of, of getting intel on what these rockets were to try to develop the technology and to continue to develop the technology for potential future wars. So the United States called their operation Operation Paperclip. <laughs> and they basically took thousands of German scientists that were in the Western occupied areas and they brought them to the United States, uh, brought them out to the Western states where they had these kind of secret rocket testing government areas, a la Area 51, etc., <laughs> including one of uh, Germany's top rocket specialists, this guy named Werner von Braun. So they had Werner von Braun. He was like the Michael Jordan of their team. And then hey, they had his whole team. They had gotten them all back. And then the, the Russians had a similarly uh, a, a similar operation. Theirs was called Operation Osoavia Kim, if hmm. I'm pronouncing that correct. Probably not. But no this operation similarly took over 2,000 German specialists of all types, science specialists, and brought them to Russia to work in their secret rocket factories. And it, it looks like they got around 170 rocket specialists in their sweep. So the two countries kind of divided up the German intelligence um, and brought them to their respective countries mm -hmm. to continue to, to work on these tests and to improve and perfect this rocket technology. And it was these two rival teams that started developing rockets in the US and in the Soviet Union. And in the United States, the focus was on weaponry and specifically using rockets as a delivery system for nuclear bombs, which we had already figured out. And we were keen to turn, you know, to go from just like dropping a bomb to actually being able to like direct and target a bomb of that size. And and the Soviets, I think, were also interested in mm -hmm. the the war aspect of it and the weaponry aspect of it, but recognized maybe a little bit earlier the propaganda value of having having satellites and having outer space be this frontier that you could conquer and then use that as you know in your propaganda to sort of demonstrate your technological prowess as a country and therefore like affect public opinion and national pride and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So the Soviets in the U.S. were focused a little bit on different goals in that sense. Um, but then when Sputnik launched, it kind of reoriented the competition. Do you do you want to discuss how Sputnik kind of shifted the entire uh, the entire game? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because the Americans after World War Two were sort of like I read somewhere like just like resting on their laurels. Like they'd done this like horrible but impressive thing with bombing Japan, their nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they and they were developing this new technology. And the Soviets, meanwhile, yeah, were like, well, we can't do that, but we might as well do this other thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they come up with Sputnik, which is is not even like they had this much grander idea for what Sputnik could be, but it, it came down to they wanted to do it first. So they just did what they did. And Sputnik is not very sophisticated, but it was like it got the job done. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when it launched, the American public was completely floored. Like people were just shocked and horrified by this because this was like the era you know of like hiding under your desk 
if a bomb is coming or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this was like a very like constant fear in people's minds. And one historian describes um, the reaction to Sputnik in the United States, like as if like um, a technological like Pearl Harbor, like people were just so surprised and horrified by it. Mm-hmm. In the month of October, after Sputnik launches, the New York Times writes almost 300 articles about Sputnik, which is like about 10 per day that mentioned the satellite. (laughs) So everyone is just freaking out. And part of their freaking out is because as Sputnik goes around the Earth, it's sending out like a radio beacon, which is these beeps. And people on the ground can pick up the beeps on their radios. Even amateurs can pick it up on the radio so people can hear Sputnik and it's in the newspaper it says where Sputnik will be so if you're in Hawaii you know when Sputnik's going to pass over and you can pick up his beep his beeps it's beeps on the radio yeah and some U.S. people in the U.S. think that maybe Sputnik is sending like codes with its beeps yeah I saw one of the newsreels uh from the time where one of the experts is being interviewed and he's asked if it could be sending secret codes in these in these beeps and his answer is well it could be we don't have oh, enough God. information at this point to, de- <laughs> to say it's not you know to like determine whether uh, it is or not which i'm sure just like inflamed the paranoia yeah right yeah good good answer guy but it's kind of a brilliant propaganda move in that yeah you could if any random person could pick up the sound yeah that makes it so much more real in your life yeah if you're just like sitting on your shortwave radio or whatever and suddenly you're like hearing the sound of russian technology overhead yeah beeping overhead Right. I'm not even sure the Soviets meant for it to be like mm-hmm. scary. It's just like this radio that was pinpointing. Yeah. But there was one one NBC radio announcer had a great quote. They were playing the beeps on the radio and he said, listen now for the sound that forevermore separates the old from the new. Mm-hmm. So this was really a moment where people were like, oh, my God, like we're in the future now. But this completely this reaction is completely different from the president's Eisenhower who isn't like worried at all. He was warned that this was coming. He's not concerned. He says publicly that it doesn't concern him one iota, but he's just like out of step with the public reaction. And he does meet privately with like his science team to talk about next steps and stuff. But U.S. officials in public are very like dismissive of Sputnik. One person calls it a hunk of iron anyone could launch. And the White House press secretary says that they never thought that they would be in competition with the Soviets. Although, of course, this like starts a competition between the U.S. and the Soviets to start working on like space technology. And then on the other side, the Soviets also put out a very like smug statement about how like uh, they say something like, let me see. Our contemporaries will witness how the free and conscientious labor of the people of the new socialist society makes the most daring dreams of mankind a reality. Which is basically like, you know, haha, we beat you to it with our like socialist model versus versus your yeah tremendous amount of shade going back and forth you know the whole whatever the whole cold war is like is like such a passive aggressive mess but yeah was eisenhower i mean was he privately worried about it because he did he did then initiate this project vanguard he finally got on board with this idea that we needed to put more emphasis on on sending missions up into space and into orbit and he moved up the mm-hmm. timetable also to try to get something up into orbit faster. So I guess maybe he was calm, but then he kind of slowly realized, I guess as is what you're saying, he slowly kind of came around to this idea that like, we should get this going and be able to demonstrate what we can do. Well, the US 
had he had announced publicly in 1955 that the U.S. was going to launch a satellite into space. This was like a thing that was like the U.S. They, they were going to do. They thought eventually they didn't really feel like they mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. were pressured to do it quickly. But he was he really like he was not concerned. There was a mm-hmm. CIA report that came out. But they talk about how Eisenhower's reaction was so different from the American public and how this quote about how he wasn't concerned was seen as very strange. And he probably was like worried in, in private, but he mm-hmm. wasn't. He he was kind of like, we're going to do this. It's fine. And like, yeah, he did meet with the scientists and move things forward. But he was not too concerned about it, as opposed to everyone else in the country mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the time. Right, right. Well, whatever he did in moving things forward, this Project Vanguard, which uh, attempts to launch its own satellite into orbit on December 6, 1957, it fails. So whatever cutting corners they did to move it up, the rocket went It went up about four feet, <laughs> came down, and then the gas compartments exploded you know, the U.S. press and international press were, you know, it was an embarrassment to the U.S. They had all these great nicknames for it. Flopnik, Stayputnik, Kaputnik, Dudnik, Oopsnik, which I feel <laughs> like some of those are good. But like Oopsnik is like just that. like putting Nick on the, f- the end of Oops. It's not like it rhymes with Sputnik. Like, <laughs> Those are pretty solid. I think Sputnik is the best because it's... I think they're all winners. It contains the most of Sputnik. Yeah. At any rate, it was a, it was a huge <laughs> failure. And a few days later, the Soviet Union at the United Nations threw out some more passive-aggressive shade and asked whether the United States was interested in receiving aid earmarked for undeveloped <laughs> countries. Ooh. Whoa. Burn. Ouch. Um, so the U.S. continued to try and actually continued to fail. But Russia, you know, it was not an easy an easy thing to do. And Russia also had their own failures. So the Sputnik 2 actually is launched, which contains a dog. But then the, the U.S. tried with another Vanguard 2. That also failed. Um, they tried with another one called the Explorer 2, which is a separate project by a different subset of uh, military groups. And then finally, in March of 1958, roughly six months or so after the Russians send Sputnik up, the U.S. finally gets Vanguard 1 to orbit around the Earth. But then just a few years later, the USSR ends up sending the first human into space and beats the United States to that feat. Yes. And that that freaks the U.S. out e- even more and kind of puts <laughs> us in a position where we're really starting to feel like, you know, our national pride is is just getting we're just being made fools of. Yeah, right. Americans aren't especially after World War Two and America's left is the only superpower like, yeah, what's going on? It's not right. So, I mean, so the, the USSR sends a man to space, Yuri Garrigan, and the U.S. does it, too, a couple weeks later. Alan Shepard. But this isn't enough. And they, they really want to like outdo the Soviets. At this point, there's a new president, uh, John F. Kennedy. And he thinks that the U.S. needs to do something really dramatic, you know, to grab this mantle back of like being number one. So NASA had been established in July of 1958. And Kennedy actually sends Lyndon Johnson to like talk to them and be like, what can we do to get ahead of the Soviets in this in this race? And NASA mm-hmm. says the U.S. has no chance of beating Russia and launching a space station or orbiting the moon. But they could probably land a man on the moon. So this becomes the new goal. And JFK says this to Congress in, in May 1961, that the U.S. should, before the decade is out, land a man on the moon. 
bring it back to Earth. Surprisingly, I thought Americans like aren't super impressed by this. There's like some Gallup poll at the time where like, I think like 50% of people like were like, nah, this, mm-hmm. why are we wasting our time putting a man on the moon? But JFK like stands behind this idea and he gives this big speech where he says this iconic quote of his, we choose to go to the moon and we're doing this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And then sadly, JFK does not live to see it. But in July of 1969, the Americans do land a man on the moon, thus, I guess, pulling the U.S. ahead in the space race and and achieving a great, a great technological goal. But since then, the space race has really changed. It's not only the U.S. and the Soviets anymore. It's a bit more of a crowded field, isn't it? Yeah. So over the 60s and 70s, after the U.S. goes to the moon, uh, the Russians go into space. There's talk of collaboration. There's certainly competition and the Cold War is at its height. And so there is a bit of a tension between these ideas of, well, maybe we can be competitors on Earth, but space is this area in which we can actually collaborate. So there's all sorts of negotiations about trying to like create some collaborations where they can actually work together. And most of them fall apart because it's just too it's too sensitive a time for these two nations that are really at odds with each other. And the the negotiations around space collaborations get tied up in, in all the political negotiations and bargaining that's going on and nothing really comes to fruition. The only thing that they did end up working on the US and the Soviets was this universal docking system so that two satellites could meet in space and actually like link together that would then allow like a, an astronaut or cosmonaut as the Soviets called astronauts to like go from one space station to the next, like to go back and forth. Um, So they did successfully do that, but there wasn't a lot of collaboration really until the Soviet Union falls apart. And then Russia then forms Roscosmos, which uh, is like this new Russian analog of NASA. And at that point, uh, the Russians start the Mir space station and the United States has a successful shuttle program where they're reusing shuttles that um, have these big, you know, uh, the classic like NASA space shuttle image of almost plane like, but it has these huge tanks of liquid propulsion gas that propel it up into space. They were using U.S. shuttles to get back and forth up to the Mir Russian Mir space Mm. station for a long time. They did several, they did like 11 missions throughout the like 90s and early 2000s until the Mir space station was discontinued. Um, And then... Then there's this international space station uh, that is like a collaboration between the United States, Japan, Russia, Canada, and the European countries. So they all come together around 2000 and they complete, I think it was completed in 2000. Uh, They were working on the late 90s. And then there was, they had this space station that all of them could use in different forms. And it was occupied by this kind of like Captain Planet-esque international amalgam of uh, astronauts doing experiments, doing testing, and all using the space station for different means. And today there's actually 70, I think it's 72 countries that have space programs of some sort and 14 countries actually have launch capabilities but even countries that don't have their own launch capabilities have these government entities that are working on projects related to outer space and have their own cohorts of astronauts who are kind of linked into the the international space station Mm. and even right now 
space is crowded with competitors trying to go to Mars. We actually saw China, the United States, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, land on Mars all within the same like month period very recently to do experiments on Mars and to have these rovers go around collecting material. So lots going on in space in the realm of scientific exploration, but there's also a lot of competitiveness in more of the space and space travel frontier. Right. What's going on there? Yeah, for our purposes, that's interesting. Um, Well, you know, it seems that space is like the next frontier of travel in some ways. And you have very rich men like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson with their respective companies planning to uh, create suborbital suborbital space tourism, which is basically just you go up for like a little while, get an incredible view and then come back down. At least that's the very early stages of their ideas. So that could be like next for people for travel. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this idea sort of harkens back to our first episode ever. This idea of even flying in a plane to go somewhere is expensive and you only go if you have the money to do so. So, I mean, at the way space travel is right now as a as a possible thing for tourism is very early days. And yeah, you would need a lot of money to do it, but maybe it's going to go in that direction for a little while. Just, you know, remain something that you do if you're rich. I think eventually there'll be some sort of space travel where you'll go up in New York and land in Paris in like three hours or something. You know, I think I read about that before. So... Yeah. yeah. Maybe there'll be an outer space deregulation act. <laughs> yeah. That will bring down the prices on outer space flights and make it more of something that anyone can do. Probably so. I, I think that's very and possible. We'll all be vacationing on the moon. Or Mars. Mm-hmm. Or Jupiter. Okay, uh, well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can email us at yesterdayintravel at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Yesterday in Trav. And uh, next episode is going to be on the railroads and the connection of the Eastern and Western Railroad that connected the continental United States, which happened just after the Civil War, which will be really interesting. So follow us, send us emails. Tweet at us, review on Apple Podcasts, and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.